Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com with another great Bible conversation to have, and I think you're going to love it. Brother Shahe Jurgen is with me, and join me via Zencaster. Now, the snooty audio part of me needs to tell you this, although a lot of you may not care. But when Shahe and I were recording this on Zencaster, I thought I was using my studio mic. However, it wasn't plugged in. Thankfully, my webcam was. And so it will be an inferior audio recording on my end. But you know what? Shahe sounds great, and he's got a great golden voice. So enjoy listening to that part of it. And I apologize for the weak audio on my side. But we're going to have a great study on the four pillars of the gospel. Let's jump straight into it, shall we? I enjoy having my guests kind of introduce themselves because I might know you, but there may be people who listen to this program who don't know you, even though I imagine, uh, I think the, the funny thing is, I think a lot of my listeners probably are already have subscribed to your content. And so maybe on their way to work, they listen to the search and then they listen to the latest PSB. And so we're, it's like a crossover. We're like a, a Marvel multiverse uh, <laughs> presentation today. But the, the one cup multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious uh, if you would take a moment, please, to introduce yourself, yes, who you sure. are, and what your work is. Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. So my name is Shahe Jurgen, and uh, I live in Clovis, California, Fresno County, mid, mid part of California. Uh, I have been living here for about a year and a half and preaching, what we might say, preaching full-time for, oh, I don't know, coming up on 13 years. Um, I spent nine years in Columbia, Missouri, which was a wonderful time in my life. Uh, one of the things I was able to do while living in Columbia was to attend a Bible college uh, where I earned a, a BA in biblical research. And uh, that's been a, a great benefit to me in my Bible studies, especially getting to learn a lot about original languages, Hebrew and Greek. Uh, my wife and kids and I spent two years living overseas, kind of like Jonathan, uh, who spent a few years in Cambodia, three years, I think, if I remember correctly. That's right. And uh, our foreign work was a little different than Jonathan's because we happened to be overseas when a global pandemic began. Uh -huh. And so uh, a lot of that time was sort of upended, but it was still a great experience for us. And then when we returned to America in um, 2021, uh, we decided to relocate to California, which is where my wife and I are both originally from and have been enjoying being back in the Golden State now for the last year and a half. Uh, I operate a, a YouTube channel called The Search. If you go to YouTube and you uh, search for um, Join The Search, that's the actual handle. You can find okay. the YouTube channel, and uh, we're on all the social media platforms as well, where we try to focus on expository Bible study. That's really the niche of, uh, of The Search. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, come find us over there on YouTube. Yeah, I, you know, I listen to your content um, sometimes whenever I'm exercising or out on a jog, what I find has been very frustrating is really good points are made where I'm not around any paper to write them down. <laughs> and so I have to pause. And I'm sure the neighbors, as I walk by and I'm, I'm shouting, Hey Siri, take a note, you know, uh, <laughs> that don't appreciate it as much, but I have found that your expository studies have been very challenging and healthy. And, and I want to encourage everybody to 
uh, go listen to those as well. So you're, you said you're on most traditional social media platforms, so it'll be pretty easy to find you. Yeah, on we're on uh, YouTube and TikTok as Join the Search, and I think Facebook and Instagram as Join the Search today. Join the Search wasn't available there. So uh, if you just you search for us on YouTube, that's the best place to start, and then you can find all of our, our links from there if you want to find us and follow us on social media stuff. Sure, and I'll, I'll do my best whenever I post this uh, for, for PSB listeners, just on my website, pureandsimplebible.com slash podcast for this episode. I'll, I'll do my best to try to uh, share those links in the description as well. So um, I'm glad you're here. You and I, I feel like uh, you said 13 years that you've been preaching. Does that mean you started in 2010? Yep, that's right. I got ordained in 2010 as well. So, okay. Uh, we're about the same age, same kind of life experience, uh, family experience, and, and yet a lot in a lot of ways, I feel like I don't know you too well. Um, we've just kind of missed each other as far as going to this meeting or that meeting, but I have valued and appreciated your work. So I've wanted you to come on my program just so I could have a conversation with you. And I, I asked... Uh, for you to just bring something you enjoy preaching so that we can talk about it. And you've brought a study called The Four Pillars of the Gospel. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a whole lot that we can talk about. Um, let me just start with the title. Why do you call it Four Pillars? And uh, is there any connection to Buddhism, which has the five pillars of their faith? I've been asked the same question about Islam. I believe that there's the four pillars of Islam as well. No, no connection. Really what I was trying to answer in my own mind with this particular study, which I should just note was several years in the making and still something I'm constantly tweaking. Uh, the, the question I was trying to answer is not only what is the gospel, but what is consistent throughout the gospel preaching or the presentations of the gospel that we see uh, in the New Testament. So one of the things we'll notice as we get into the study is that the gospel is presented in actually significantly different ways in the book of Acts, in the epistles, even wow. in the four gospels. And so what I tried to figure out is, well, what are the common elements that connect all of these gospel presentations together as Jewish audiences, Gentile audiences, we're learning about Jesus. What were those core elements that were present in all of those presentations? And I found four. And so the, you know, sometimes I say instead of the four pillars, I might say the gospel is preached in four movements or with four oh, key okay. elements. It's just the four pillars was just terminology that I found uh, helpful for myself. Well, for for me, I'm a simple guy. And I always try to distill things, not necessarily cheapen them, but distill it down to something that is memorable for me to take away. And so I appreciate that in this conversation, maybe with these four movements, uh, we're going to flesh it out a little bit more. So, for example, when I think of gospel, I'm thinking about the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, is that a fair summary of it or is it maybe more uh complicated and that's maybe a negative word but is it am i cheapening it by calling it what i've just said no i don't think so of course that idea comes from from first corinthians 15 so and and i'll get to that in just a second if you don't mind maybe just give a little bit of the backstory which sure. is 
the two-thirds of our Bible that we call the Old Testament, because before Jesus ever came on the scene and before anyone preached what we think of as the gospel, the good news, um, God was doing a lot in the world uh, to lead up to that point in time. And so we open up our Bible in the book of Genesis. We learn about God's work in creation, how he made a good world. He made humans to be like him, to represent him on the earth. He planted a, a garden temple we call Eden, and uh, there he could dwell with the humans, his image bearers, who would minister in his sacred presence and worship him. And all of that, of course, was toppled when sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve decided uh, that they would reject God's rule and become their own gods and decide what was good and bad on their own terms and rule in their own ways. And so from that time forward, God was working out a way that he could restore humanity back into his presence and that he could enable them to be the image bearers he created them to be. And that's really what is the whole story of the Bible, God accomplishing that goal. So then we see throughout the Old Testament all these different strands of the work of God, the, the promise to Abraham to bring blessings to all the peoples of the earth, the promise to Moses to raise up a prophet like him, uh, the promise to David, which I agree with your dad, is one of the most important elements of the Bible story, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, when, when God made that promise to David to raise up his heir, who would sit on an eternal throne and rule over an everlasting kingdom. I mean, from the time that promise was made to David forward, much of the rest of the Old Testament is about that exact thing. God's work through the Davidic monarchy. God promised uh, Israel that after they were sent away to captivity, he would restore them back to their land. We read like in the prophet Malachi that God promises to come down to his temple and to dwell with his people. So all of these strands of thought, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the son of man in Daniel, uh, all of these strands of thought were in the memory and the minds of the people of Israel, uh, as they were anticipating this figure that we could just roughly sort of sum up together into referring to him as the Messiah, even though, you know, that's a little reductive because uh, even the Apostle Peter didn't see how the Messiah, who was the anointed king of the line of David, could also be the suffering servant right. uh, who would die for the people until, of course, it happened. And then Jesus rose from the dead. So we had all these different strands of, of Old Testament thought, and they lead up to uh, this announcement in Mark 1, when Jesus comes to Galilee after his baptism and his temptation period in the wilderness, and he makes this statement. This is Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Nice. So, all these things now are come together in Jesus. God is going to reclaim his world. Uh, he's, that's what the kingdom of God coming onto the earth means. He's, Jesus is calling on people to turn, to look to him, to believe in the gospel. And so we then ask, well, what is the gospel? And the answer that you gave uh, I think is, the, is a typical answer, and it's not a bad answer or a wrong answer. It's just a little incomplete. Oh. So that's what 1 Corinthians 15 uh, is in, in sort of giving us one gospel presentation. And 
When we look at 1 Corinthians 15, of course, we have to understand that this is part of a larger discussion that Paul is having with the Corinthian church, which was you know, horribly divided and having all kinds of problems. But he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as a first importance, as verse 3, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Verse 5, you know, is part of the same sentence. Uh, we take death, burial, and resurrection. Sometimes we forget about the post-resurrection appearances being mentioned there in verse 5, which then he explains a little bit more in verses 6 through 8. Right. So to say the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is true. That is a true statement. But that's not the only time even Paul summarizes the gospel. There's another gospel summary just like this in Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. And different elements of the gospel are included there, like how Jesus is a descendant of David. Well, there's nothing about that in 1 Corinthians 15, yet it's mentioned in Romans 1. Do you see? There's nothing about the burial of Jesus in Romans 1, yet it's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is part of the struggle that I had well, we have, it sounds like, different gospel presentations. So what do we do with all that? How do we put them together? Right. And so you're, what you've just kind of led our, our listeners through over the past few minutes is this um, overarching summary of, of uh, maybe story is not the right word, but the Bible narrative and how it's all connected. I sometimes feel disheartened whenever people are are fairly familiar with the 27 books of the New Testament, mm. but they, they're quite unfamiliar with the, the various books of the Old Testament. And so um, I don't know if, if this has been the first pillar that you're talking about, or if this has just been an intro to the first pillar, but I happen to see in your note that the first pillar is the history of Israel. So that means it's going to be primarily Old Testament. Have we just talked about that, or is that something that you want to dive into a little bit more specifically. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, you know, I mentioned these two gospel summaries from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, in Romans 1. We could look at the book of Acts 2, where we see some gospel sermons, like okay. Paul, who preaches in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, or maybe the one that many of us are most familiar with, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts right. 2. Right. And if you look at all of those, those two sermons in the book of Acts, or those two gospel summaries in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 1, one of the first things you'll notice is that each and every one of them, even though they're to different audiences on different occasions, speak about the history of Israel in some way. Right. And right. that connective tissue between God's work in the Old Testament and God's work in Jesus was vitally important to the apostles. And you could not separate them. I mean, even if we turn our attention to the four gospel accounts, and uh, this is just a little, you know, we all have our little pet peeves. Uh, um, it, you know, I prefer to think of them as the four gospel accounts rather than the four gospels, because there's really only one gospel. Right. There's only one good news. It's just accounted to us. The life of Jesus is narrated to us in these four different books. 
Is this but one of those all... actually things where you say actually when you're talking to people? <laughs> I try. Oh, I try not to do that <laughs> because I know how condescending I can sound sometimes. <laughs> I'm aware of it. I'm making active steps to try to improve it. <laughs> sure. sure. But um, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you consistently have this focus of connectivity between the history of Israel or the message of the prophets or the promises of God to Abraham and David and the person and work of Jesus. Matthew well, has think, his, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to interject. I think I'm hearing the answer to my own question, but if I were you know, kind of skeptical and I'd say, yeah, but we live in a new covenant, we don't need to know all this. You know, we just need to know the red letters and we need to know what we're supposed to do, you know, on a Sunday. Um, what what I'm inferring, and I guess you can flesh this out some more, but I'm inferring that uh, the red letters and what I do on a Sunday are are attached to the Old Testament. And so somebody's got to know it in order to appreciate why we do what we do, right? Well, absolutely. And and I think our our theology or our understanding of the Bible story uh, or our interpretation of biblical texts will always, in one way or another, impact our practice. Mm. Um, and so, for example, and this is not a criticism, this is just an observation. You know, when I uh, think about the kinds of songs that many congregations tend to sing in an assembly, I see a lot of songs, um, for example, that are about, you know, how difficult life is and how depressed I am, how nobody cares about me and how uh, terrible the world is and how everything is falling apart. But at least I get to go to heaven when I die. Right. And I think, well, is that really true? Uh, I know people, of course, have many difficulties in life and many people struggle with depression and all kinds of other uh, forms of, um, you know, mental and psychological struggles. And I'm not diminishing that at all. But that doesn't seem to be the way that the apostles talked. They they spoke much more optimistically about what God was doing in the world. And so I do think that our theology and our interpretation of Scripture will have an impact on the practical way that we live our life. Um, I heard you recently give an excellent lesson on joy from Philippians 2, and I appreciated that lesson so much. And I think, well, if we have an appropriate, proper, biblical view of the gospel, uh, that should instill us with much more joy than the kind of pessimism I see from a lot of Christians who say, well, the world's falling apart, the country's going you know, down, everything is awful all around us, but at least, I guess, we get to go to heaven one day. Right. And I just don't see the apostles who were living in much more dire circumstances than we are ever talking that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm to your point, and I've made this point several times, maybe on this program and elsewhere whenever I preach, but I can't help but think of Timothy in um, the epistle that Paul wrote to him in 2 Timothy about the scriptures that he learned since childhood. And just his, from, on a historical timeline, he the, the New Testament wouldn't have been written. And so the scriptures that provided him comfort and hope and led him to the truth of the Messiah would have been the Old Testament. So there is a, I mean, that's a very tangible, real example of somebody who found the joy and comfort and peace of the scriptures and the hope of the Messiah 
in the Old Testament. They didn't just stay in the red letters. Yeah, I mean, it's been rightly said that the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. And Uh so before the New Testament was written, the first Christians had the Old Testament. Of course, they had the preaching of the apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit in imparting spiritual gifts. Um, But as far as the written text that they had to lean on, it was the Old Testament. We see that reflected in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see that even Mark, who is maybe the least overtly um, Israel-centric, still begins on the very first line of his gospel with uh, packing in all kinds of Old Testament themes. Uh, The, The word gospel itself comes from Isaiah. The word Messiah or Christ, how can anyone hope to understand what that word even means apart from understanding it in the context of the Davidic covenant and the promise right. God made to King David. Right. And then in Mark 1, verse 2, he immediately goes to Isaiah to explain the ministry of John the Baptist. And so these men uh, who wrote these accounts really emphasize the continuity between the work of God as recorded in the Old Testament and the person and mission of Jesus. And I just don't know how a person can rightly understand what it even means for Jesus to have died on the cross without understanding the significance of major themes and personalities and events of the Old Testament. Now, I know that we all grow in our knowledge, and we might say, well, there are, you know, does a person have to learn the whole Old Testament before even becoming a Christian? No, obviously, I've been a Christian for a long time, and there are lots of parts of the Old Testament that I'm still trying to figure out and understand. Right. There are, I think, some basic concepts when we tell people, believe in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and things like that. When we tell people about uh, what it means to follow Jesus and and the commitment that it that it is to follow Jesus, I think we have to understand that we're using words that apart from at least a, a baseline understanding of the Old Testament don't actually have any meaning because it's from the Old Testament and from the story of Israel that a lot of those words and concepts even draw their, their very ideas, their very their very meaning. So in this this first pillar, um that helps me maybe appreciate the gospel or, or understand what the gospel is and how to present it. Uh, we're talking about the Old Testament, the history of, of of God's people, Israel, throughout it. Is it just about knowing the themes? Is it is it about, is there something I should be looking for within the Old Testament specific, or is it just kind of a general understanding of it that gives me this pillar? Yeah, I think a lot of it's going to be based on audience needs. And this isn't an observation that I try to make with people when interpreting various books of the New Testament. Um, You could say the same, but it's not quite the same for the Old Testament, although some prophets ministered to northern Israel and some to southern Judah and so on and so forth. But for the books of the New Testament, um, I think every book in the New Testament was occasional So it was occasioned by particular needs among a group of people to whom the apostles were ministering and preaching. Right. And so I think part of the reason why we see these shades of differences in gospel presentations from one book to the next is because the apostles understood where their audiences were and were trying to bring them to a more full understanding 
to get them to the point where they wanted them to be. So what do we need to know from the Old Testament in order to preach the gospel? Well, I think it will depend on what our audience needs are. So like when Paul goes to Mars Hill in Acts 17, and he's preaching to uh, an entirely pagan Gentile audience who doesn't know anything about the Old Testament, he starts from where he can start from, which is to proclaim the one true creator God, which of course is a very Old Testament idea that there is one God who made everything, there is one God who has ordered the cosmos, there's one God who even make, made it so that there were nations and different tribes and tongues and peoples. I mean, this happened after the, the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. So these are, we might say, really core ideas that maybe the people we are preaching to already have an understanding of. So we might not need to uh, rehearse those ideas for them. But right. there may be other ideas that people don't know about, like uh, what what was the promise that God made to Abraham? Mm. Because when I open up Luke especially, Luke loves to talk about Abraham. Yeah. And, uh, and he, from the very beginning with uh, the songs of Mary and Zechariah that he records in Luke chapter one, there's this emphasis of God remembering the ancestors and uh, being merciful to us because of Abraham and raising up the horn of salvation uh, for his servant David, you know. And so these promises are central to the theme of the whole Bible, the, the message of the whole Bible. And I just think that people need to have an awareness that when we preach the gospel, uh, when we preach about Jesus, we're preaching about a message that was couched in Old Testament language from the very beginning. And right. it's important for us to have at least a baseline understanding of, of what that language is and what those words mean. I have told folks that I've studied with uh, that Christ, in Jesus Christ, is not his last name, like Jonathan Edwards, Jesus right. Christ. You know, It's not his family name, but it is connected to it's the Greek form of for Messiah, which, and if you don't know what Messiah means of, of the anointed one, uh, then you can't appreciate that he is the Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, it's humorous, you know, lighthearted, but then also um, it makes me remember that, that not everybody just naturally knows that. But I've had people shocked going, oh, I just thought that was his name, Jesus yeah, Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so what, what I'm maybe summarizing for you, here is that this understanding the history of God's people, having an appreciation for the Old Testament, naturally uh, bolsters our faith in the gospel because they're intrinsically connected. You can't really have one without the other, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and even you know the the most basic definition of the word Christ is anointed one, but really in the context of the whole. Old Testament story, I think it's more specifically the anointed king. Right. Uh, because while it's true that prophets and priests were also called messiahs or anointed ones, really, by the time you get to uh, David and the book of Psalms, the word is almost exclusively used to speak of God's anointed king. Mm -hmm. And so when we think, when we say Jesus Christ, I think we should think Jesus the anointed king of the line of David. I think that's okay. really the meaning that it carries, and you wouldn't know that 
if you didn't know anything, you know, about the Old Testament story. Right. Well, is maybe I'm uh, pressing you a little bit quicker than than you're ready to go. So are we missing things from point one that, that are, are essential to bring up or can we jump into the second pillar? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we can what definitely is go to the second one. So we have this backstory now. We have this baseline information from Israel's history and from the prophets and from the Old Testament. And obviously that leads into the next phase which is the the point that I have as it worded is the work of Christ. Okay. And so we're dealing in the second pillar with the person, life, deeds, teaching, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances, and ascension of Jesus into heaven. And that, of course, is the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the story that all of the apostles uh, emphasize in their writings and in their preaching. And there are times when the story of Jesus or the work of Jesus uh, sometimes is really condensed. Like I think about that passage that uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 when he said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. Jesus, the anointed king, and his death by crucifixion. And that is a real bare-bones uh, easily memorizable way of summarizing all the content that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. So that that sometimes is is you know those are helpful things. I think about Paul making those kinds of little bare bones statements throughout many of his writings, and really what those are alluding to is the overall work of Jesus, not just his death, burial, resurrection, and post resurrection appearances. Um, but all that Jesus did, all that Jesus taught, and all that Jesus accomplished, especially uh, through his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. So the gospel starts with Israel's history and God's purposes in the world through Israel, but it drives forward towards this goal, this, this work that was to be accomplished for Israel and the nations through Jesus, through the anointed king, through the Son of God, who can fulfill the rescue plan that God has been unfolding over time and who can fulfill it victoriously. And I think that's the main point I want to emphasize here in this second in this second pillar is that the work Jesus has accomplished has been victorious. And uh, this is a key word in the New Testament that there was nothing about the work of Jesus that was insufficient or temporary uh, or lacking in any way, but that Jesus has accomplished a great victory in fulfilling God's rescue plan uh, to save the world and to redeem those fallen image bearers and to restore the relationship that God had in the very beginning with the humans. I like that. And I know that um, you, you made this in the previous point. But I liked uh, what you said about Mark chapter 1. I'm going to flip over there real quick. And how Jesus first recorded words um, that are beginning his work are tying his work into this, you know, the, the first pillar. So we're talking about the, visualizing the second pillar, but um, he's tying it to the first pillar, which when he said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Boom. Mm-hmm. We're jumping yep. into 
uh, how he's going to accomplish this with his his great works. It seems like this is going to be the 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 pillar, maybe that that most are familiar with. Since yes, it's similar to what I had said at the very beginning. I like to distill the gospel down to you know something simple like death, burial, resurrection. Do you find, as you talk to people about this, that the second pillar of Jesus' work is the most commonly understood or, or uh, maybe mentioned? Well, you're going to have to come back next week if you want to hear more about the four pillars of the gospel. We're in the middle of the second point. Shahi's about to make a really excellent observation about the life and work of Jesus, but you got to come back next week if you want to hear it. So please do so. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It is helpful for my analytics and it makes it a top suggestion for others who are looking for content that's like this. So help me out and subscribe. You can leave a five-star review. That's also helpful and I would appreciate it. Until next week, go to the website, check out all the content for pureandsimplebible.com. You can download it for free and use it. And always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.